Welcome to our podcast, Immunization Morning Commute, working toward health equity through vaccination. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this episode, Dr. Joseph McGowan and Dr. David Rosenthal discuss inequities in healthcare, especially as it relates to access to young adult and adult vaccines. What is the difference between inequity and inequality? How can inequity be overcome, especially in regard to vaccination, to ensure everyone has the advantage of this mainstay of public health? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine three. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can be also accessed in the episode notes. Dr. McGowan is Professor of Medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in Manhasset, New York. Dr. Rosenthal is Medical Director in the Department of Medicine and Pediatrics at Northwell Health in Great Neck, New York. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. McGowan will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by Dr. David Rosenthal. Welcome, David. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss vaccines in regard to access and inequity. And this has been quite an evident issue with the COVID-19 pandemic, but these same barriers are seen for all of our recommended vaccines. Unfortunately, vaccine uptake in young adults and adults has been poor in the United States, especially among certain racial, ethnic, and economic groups. And we've become very sensitized due to COVID and the focus is rightly there, but we had over 35 and a half million cases and 34,000 Americans who died of influenza in 2019, almost 44,000 people who died from pneumococcal disease. And there have been over 45,000 HPV associated cancers diagnosed in recent years. So many of these could have been prevented by more widespread and routinely administered vaccination as part of routine primary care. So the burden of illness that we're gonna discuss has not been evenly distributed. Uh, We have to remember that vaccination has been widely considered one of the greatest global medical achievements of modern civilization. According to WHO, we avert about two to three million deaths a year from vaccination. And it's one of the major contributors to our uh, advanced uh, increasing life expectancy over the past century. So once commonplace diseases like smallpox, polio, and measles have been effectively eradicated from vaccines. So a complacency is not really an option. And we've seen, at least in New York, we saw not too long ago, how a lapse in vaccination led to local epidemic and measles cases. So vaccination is cost-effective. It's scalable to provide a passive means of disease control for an entire population. Uh, What we need is probably a diabetes vaccine too. So we've learned a lot about vaccines as a tool to protect us against infections, especially from respiratory infections like COVID or influenza. So in order for them to be effective, we have to get a high level of immunity in the population, high enough to stop the spread. And we've heard talk recently about herd or population immunity. And that's the level of protection needed uh, to achieve, um, uh, get the population protected against any uh, spreading disease. And that can vary between 50 and over 90%. The two most important factors that uh, indicate how much herd immunity we need are how contagious the infection is and how long lasting the immunity. 
So for something like measles, for example, each case could infect another 14 to 18 people. So you need to have over 95% of the population uh, vaccinated in order to get herd immunity. And then the other issue, how long the immunity lasts. For measles, that immunity is lifelong. So we only have to get to everybody once and vaccinate them. But for something like norovirus, for example, uh, immunity lasts only about six months. So herd immunity is not gonna be a strategy that would be particularly effective for that infection. COVID somewhere in between, about two to three infections per case. So that comes up to that 70 to 75% pop of the population that has to be vaccinated to protect us. If we look at our list of the vaccines that are necessary for adults and young adults that are recommended um, by the uh, Advisory Committee on Immune Practices, that's the ACIP, for example, influenza, that has an infection rate of about two cases per infection, uh, shorter immunity, so for that we vaccinate every year. For Tdap, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, that requires a booster every 10 years. For measles, mumps, rubella, you have to dose at least one dose for people who were born after 1957, uh, up to age 65. For recombinant zoster, if you're over age 50, get two doses of that and no booster is needed. For HPV, we give two to three doses for those 19 to 26, uh, but we can vaccinate up to 45, but that's something you discuss with your patient on a case-by-case -case basis, a shared decision-making, and no booster is needed for that one. And the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine uh, should be given to those over 65 or younger age if you have an immune suppressive disease. And then based on need, you can give hepatitis A, B, and meningococcal vaccination. So David, uh, a lot of people have questions about the these different types of vaccines, how they work, and so what can you tell us about this topic? Well, great, so I think that it's really important that we take a look at a few things. One is, is that really vaccinations provides thing called active immunity. So active immunity is things that you can get from actually having diagnoses or having diseases, but you can also get active immunity by being able to receive vaccines because what a vaccine does is it essentially teaches your immune system and you're able to build um, effective immune responses as a result of this. So what happens is, is your B cells are basically one of your immune cells. And what they're able to do is, is when you receive a vaccine, what it does is it basically gives you small parts of that virus or that, that bacteria that would cause you to get ill, but it gives it to you in a way that actually doesn't cause the disease or the diagnosis. And since we're able to do that, your immune system recognizes that. And then when you actually see that information, you're able to kind of have that response. You're able to have an immune response to be able to recognize that antigen or recognize that, that piece of that, um, that pathogen or that piece of bacteria or virus, and then are able to respond to it with a subsequent immune response. And so that's really one of the important things. And that's different, uh, uh, Dr. McGowan, between the other resources that we see when we're looking at something like passive immunity. So things like passive immunity is when we're able to give someone antibodies to protect them against things, and that's an infusion, but that doesn't let you maintain your own re immune responses. So the nice thing that you mentioned about immune responses is, is that by getting a vaccine, you're able to build an immune response and then hold on to that immune response by building a memory response. You basically teach your immune system how to continue to hold on to that response and then be able to continue to be able to protect you over time if you're able to have those, those responses. 
You asked a great question also. I loved when you mentioned before, Dr. McGowan, I think you mentioned, uh, you, you was talking about herd immunity. And I think it's a great conversation. You know, I'm an immunologist, as you know, and one of the things that's funny is, is we've been talking about herd immunity um, since I've, you know, kind of been looking at, at, at what I've been doing. And it kind of comes from this concept of a herd of cows or a herd of animals, basically, that are a part of a, of a group. And we're, we need to basically build enough res immune response in that group, in that herd, so that if one person or one cow in the herd basically gets sick, they're all able to remain well. And so that's why we're able to make sure that it's really important that a large number of us are able to get vaccinated. So when we see something like an outbreak of measles, um, we're able to have enough people in our community, in our herd, in our neighborhoods, in our environment, in the people that we see at work and the where we go to, and are able to then be able to make sure we're able to keep ourselves healthy um, by not having that response because enough of us are protected against that. So thank you, David. Yeah, that's such an important concept. I mean, one of the, we've touched on the poor sort of an uneven vaccine distribution that's taking place in young adults and some of the social determinants that might underlay the state of where we are. Um, and, and this is seen not only, of course, for COVID vaccines, but also for influenza, for HPV, for measles, uh, which also have been impacted by religious and cultural issues as well. Um, so how do we approach the problem? Uh, and we'll define our terms, you know, the terms equality and equity are often used interchangeably. However, they uh, differ in important ways. Uh, equality is typically defined as treating everybody the same, giving everyone access to the same opportunity. And meanwhile, equity refers to a proportional representation of things, how things are distributed, how we get things done, and that will be broken down by race, class, gender, et cetera. When you're looking at that, I think that the way I always use the analogy that makes it kind of very reasonable is if you're looking at a baseball game and you're looking at a field of people and you have people that are different heights, if you're all standing on the same size box to look over the fence, then you're basically all equal. So that's really equity. That's equality. But what we're actually doing is, is we actually want to um, be able to remove the different barriers that we're doing and being able to take those barriers and not just give certain boxes or more boxes to some people to stand on so that they can all see over the fence, but see how we can really change the paradigm. And that's really what we're doing is just by removing that old picket fence and replacing it with a wire fence. So by using that wire fence, we can actually treat everyone with equity because what we're able to do by treating people with equity is by removing the barriers that exist and by basically giving everyone the same kind of care to make it really universal for people. So that's really important, some of the things that you were talking about. And we, we touched on social determinants. Um, there's a number of social determinants, right, that we've talked about. And so you mentioned poverty and you mentioned um, the importance of, of access. But I think that we know also that there are certain racial and ethnic minorities that have had poor experiences with doctors or with healthcare in the past. And it's really important that we're able to overcome those and really recognize those cultural differences to make sure we can explain the need for vaccination and, and a way to kind of address that. Yeah, I mean, and so these are, um, I mean, we have these vaccines, you know, but we're not being that effective in reaching the population. So, you know, some of the biggest barriers I think of that are that we face are availability. Um, so, uh, it, you know, while vaccines are on the market, can they be uh, accessed by people? So for children, for example, we have the Vaccines for Children program. If they meet certain qualifications, they can get vaccines for free. Uh, COVID vaccine was made available free. Uh, other vaccines, uh, there's a cost involved, and it depends on, uh, on coverage, access to insurance, um, getting access to a community-based 
a site where you can get a vaccine delivered. If you look at the unequal distribution of care sites, uh, certain communities are, are less likely to have access to care, uh, less likely to get be able to be vaccinated. Something for young people, and many people nowadays, they get their care from urgent care centers. So they don't have a relationship necessarily with a primary care doc, and they go in for a specific problem, they get that problem dealt with, they're in and out in five or 10 minutes. And so looking at their overall preventive strategy, their, uh, the things that they need to protect themselves, that's left out. You're absolutely right. I think that's really an important piece because when we're looking at younger individuals, I mean, I think people are not necessarily going to see primary care providers as often. And one thing that we need to do is, is we need to figure out how to structure those resources so that we can make sure we can get vaccines to younger people um, as well, especially in the young adults and adolescents. And there's some really great examples. I think if people go to college, then they, they often are being able to give certain vaccines that are important for, for college-age students, like um, the meningococcal vaccine, um, both the, the group B as well as the A CWNY vaccine. But one of the things that we're seeing is, is that people that are not necessarily college bound, even though they're living in large congregate settings, they're living with five or six roommates in an apartment or whatever, they're not really being offered this vaccine in the same way. And so it's really important that we're able to, to overcome that. And similarly, we're seeing, for example, with HPV vaccine. So HPV vaccine is really interesting because it used to just really be available to people that were under the age of 26, but now the, the indications have actually expanded. So it's covered by most people's insurance that have insurance for patients that are much older. And so even though the specific indication required really encourages it for those in the younger age cohorts, it is important that we look at, at these vaccines for people that are in older age cohorts that are still having um, risk of acquiring HPV, and we can make sure that we can really do something about that. So I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah, and I, actually to stay on that HPV issue, there was an, some interesting work that was done looking at the racial and ethnic disparities about HPV vaccination. And um, what they found is that if providers, if your person's provider recommends the vaccine, so if they're educated about what the indications are, as you indicated this expanded uh, uh, indication, uh, people making this recommendation has actually lessened this disparity in race and ethnicity uh, in providing HPV vaccines. So going to that CDC website, looking at the ACIP recommendations, make sure you're approaching your patients with these uh, appropriate guidelines are really important. Uh, and as I said, with, at least with HPV, it's had an impact on some of the disparity. Yeah, that's really important. And, you know, I mean, I did a lot of work with HPV when I was getting my PhD. And, and one of the things that we're really talking about is, is that HPV vaccine not only makes a significant difference for cervical cancer, but also for anal cancer for people that have anal intercourse. It's also important for people that have different infections of the throat. Um, you can have um, human papillomavirus infections of the throat or of the lungs. And so there are impacts for HPV vaccine beyond just cervical cancer, but really to address a, a broad number of papilloma forming um, precancers and cancers that can affect multiple different parts of the body. So it's really that vaccine is important for not just, I think, um, cisgender women, but really to talk about really the, the community at large and really make sure we're addressing this across the age cohort. And, you know, I think you mentioned up something recently also about the, the recent outbreaks that we've been seeing of uh, measles um, that's existed. And I think we had, there was a number of outbreaks that have occurred across the United States in recent years that are really very important. And so really making sure that we do have both our childhood vaccines is important, but then really is ensuring that we're maintaining adequate immunity. And another perfect example of that is a tetanus shot. 
we all need to be protected against tetanus. And the guidelines are really that every 10 years you get the Tdap vaccine, the tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis vaccine, or the TD vaccine to make sure you're able to receive that um, every 10 years on a booster. And if you didn't ever get the Tdap vaccine, then your first vaccine should certainly be that way. So it's important that we look at those um, reasons because at any point we could end up having um, an interaction with a rusty nail that we could step on, that we could walk on, and that's really part of a preventative methodology that we need to be using. So David, I want to talk a little bit about this concept of education, and then, and you know, there's a stigma that's developed around vaccination and anti-vaxxers and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we uh, I just saw a campaign where um, actually New York City Department of Health is trying to get uh, people who've been vaccinated to provide, uh, to share their experiences, to provide testimonials, et cetera. You know, the whole issue of uh, the distrust of the health system in Tuskegee, uh, which is, of course is the opposite of what we're talking about here, uh, as far as you're know, having an effective treatment that we want to get out to people as opposed to withholding it. So how do you think, like, how do we educate people who are reluctant to accept vaccination uh, and I know it's a challenge for a lot of our providers. Uh, you know, they have a limited amount of time. Uh, how do you get this message across, do you think? That, what's been successful for you? So I think that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I find that's most important, and we've been seeing this a lot with the COVID vaccine, is, is really when I tell my story, when I say that I got my vaccine. And I think that that personal narrative actually makes a big difference. Because I think that what happens is, is that what better advice could I give my patients than the advice that I give myself or that I give my loved ones? And so I think that by talking about the fact that I received this vaccine, I received my flu shot this year, I received my COVID vaccine, I made sure I got my, my um, measles titers checked and made sure I was protected against measles. These are really important concepts that say, not only is this healthcare that I'm providing is the care that I want to give you, but it's the care that I'm giving myself and my loved ones. And so I think that connection with the patients, it allows you to establish rapport. It overcomes a lot of the bias that's there, and it really lets you tell your personal narrative in a way that kind of creates the connection with the patient and is able to talk about it. For certain other vaccines that are going to be treated for patients that are slightly older than I am, um, I'll talk about the shingles vaccine. And instead of talking about my experience, I'll talk about that I've recommended that my parents get it and my parents got that vaccine. So if even if that vaccine doesn't specifically apply to you or your age, I think as a provider, by telling that narrative, you can talk about the importance of it. You can tell what's happening. But I think that that personal connection makes a big difference and overcomes a lot of challenges. You know, we see with these epidemics and pandemics, it really puts a stress on the healthcare system. Um, so a lot of these are structural issues and problems. How do we, you know, I think we, we're sort of challenged in how do we get access to care? You know, we have increasing technology, improved care delivery systems. So the importance of universal access to care is, is extremely important. Uh, it's hard for individual clinicians to, to deal with that, um, you know, I think we have to look within our practices to see where there might be barriers that we can overcome to try to get access to people. Um, I think we think of ourselves a lot of times as we give the same care to everybody. You know, that's that equality notion. But when you look at the outcomes, maybe they're not equal. They're not always the same. Um, so I think we have to be careful about how we present things and, and, and present them in a cultural context, right, that's important. Um, uh, that I think that's a critical issue you mentioned with the measles issue. Uh, there were some really cultural issues there that didn't allow, uh, that, that people were very reluctant to take that vaccine. And we see it now again with, with COVID shots and, and, and other things. 
Um, so how do you address that? Like, how do you, let's say, how do you go across cultural walls or barriers that could prevent you from effectively communicating? No, I think it's really important. And I think that we really know that, that when you're looking at social determinants of health, this is really an important part and it provides a covariance. So really, is someone interested in necessarily getting a COVID vaccine or getting another vaccine if they're not sure how they're going to get food on their table? Are they going to make sure that, that you know, how are they going to access health care and come to the doctor for routine preventative care if they're not sure necessarily about what's going to cause housing stability for them. And so really one thing we have to do as a healthcare society and really kind of as healthcare providers is to ensure that we can provide healthcare and preventative healthcare. And when you look at it, it's important for multiple reasons, right? Because it overcomes um, the social determinants of health and it allows us to kind of make sure that we can address these resources that people need. But really what it also does is it allows us to continue to provide the kind of healthcare that we need as a wholesome kind of um, holistic um, direction. And that's important because what it does is it prevents us from treating only some individuals and really kind of making sure that we can treat all of society um, equally and give them the kind of healthcare that they need. I mean, so there's an argument for vaccination as well, because, you know, if you have somebody who's struggling, as you say, uh, and they and they get one of these, you know, vaccine preventable illnesses like pneumococcus and influenza, uh, you know, it's not a cakewalk. And it could really knock somebody over economically, uh, you know, if children who are sick or even a breadwinner. You know, there's a huge economic impact uh, for people who are essentially living on the edge. So I think you know that we have to look at it that way as a direct impact on these social determinants for people uh, to promote vaccination. And I think it's great. It's really important. And I think that we need to continue to look at other things. So there's a couple of important points kind of as we're wrapping up. One is, is that the recommendations by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, are available at www.cdc.gov slash vaccine slash ACIP. That website gives all of the recommendations for vaccines for both children and adolescents and adults of all ages and provides um, updates on how we can do that. So that's a really important point to consider. We also need to really make sure that we're addressing education at all levels. And that can start really from the schools and all the way through our environments that we're able to provide resources and making sure that people know that we can have educational resources available about the importance of vaccines and that we can talk about multiple points of access like we're doing with COVID vaccine. How can we make vaccines easier for people to access and really easier for people to kind of understand what's going on? And I think the important point also is to address and to tell our own stories, like I said earlier. We really need to, as we're convincing people and talking about what's happening, we really need to talk about not only the importance in the scientific data, but really telling your own story and saying, I got my vaccine. It really is important for me. My arm hurt a little bit, but that was the only side effect I had. I think it's important for you to get your vaccine too. We know that makes a big difference. And like smoking cessation, when you talked about um, those individuals that are able to talk about the importance that we're seeing about getting vaccines, um, when a provider brings up the question of vaccines proactively, that makes a huge difference in being able to improve the vaccination of those patients that are seen in that practice. And that, I think that's a great way to, to wrap up uh, the role of the physician to the clinician to bring up the vaccine, make that part of the of the visit, presented in a positive way, not just in an altruistic way, but in a way that uh, is of direct uh, benefit to the individual, to their family, et cetera. I think that's critically important. Uh, you know, we don't want to leave these great accomplishments with vaccination. We don't want to leave them on the shelf. We want to make sure that we don't take them for granted, that we uh, continue to utilize them to protect our patients and our communities. 
Um, so I think, yep, that's, I think, one of the big take-homes for today. Dr. McGowan, Joe, it's been great working with you. Thank you so much for discussing this topic. Really love it. Yes, as always. Thanks, David. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine three. For all the episodes in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash immunization. Thank you for joining us today.